The risen Christ is the conqueror, the exalted one, the lamp of God, the great high priest and the coming king. Demonstrations of power, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of lives give evidence to the risen Christ. Let's have more of these. Father, we just thank you. If we could honor you and glorify you, worship you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome your presence this morning. We welcome you, God. And we just pray that every heart and every life will be touched and ministered to this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I apologize to the people sitting outside. Uh, uh, hope you don't mind. Just, just uh, you, you can still listen to the word, but uh, we should do something about this. Okay. Um, go back in time with me to 30 AD. April of 30 AD. Jerusalem at that time was a small city. Uh, historians tell us it was just about one square mile as a city. Its population at that time was um, about 100,000 people. But as they had been doing for nearly 1,500 years, the Jews, those scattered in many different parts uh, around that region, would make their annual trip to Jerusalem to celebrate three feasts that took place within a, a span of about two months. There was a feast of the Passover. There was a feast of the first fruits. And then there was a feast of Pentecost. So many Jews would travel. And they'd been doing this now for about 1,500 years. Been doing this year after year. So, AD 30, time for the feast of the Passover. Many Jews started moving into Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, this whole big this city, which usually had about 100,000 people, now was beginning to bulge. We don't know how many. Historically, they say it could have grown to about 500,000 people over that uh, two month period. Some would come for the Feast of the Passover, stay on for the Feast of the First Fruits, go home. Some would stay all the way to the Feast of the Pentecost, which took place about 50 days later. On the, in that particular year, AD 30, on the day of the Feast of Passover, as had been done for 1,500 years before, the priest would go and he would look among all the sheep, he would look for a lamb, he would look for a lamb without blemish. He would scrutinize the flock, pick one lamb, take it in, getting it ready for the Passover. 80-30, something else was happening. At that same time, not in a temple, but in the court, Somebody else was being scrutinized. This was not a lamb from a flock, but this was the lamb of God. 
And about the time when the priest would take this lamb that he had picked out of the flock and get ready to make it as an offering in the temple. On that particular day, AD 30, somebody else was offered up on a mount called Golgotha. As the blood of the lamb flowed in the temple, there was the blood of the lamb of God flowing down on Calvary's cross. It was very different that particular year. Three days later was the feast of the first fruits. Very early in the morning, the priest would go out into the fields. He would look for the sheaf that was just, just coming up, just budding out. Even before the break of dawn, even before the sun just began to shine into that little city of Jerusalem. He'd gather the sheaf, bring it into the temple, and the early hours of the morning, he would wave them before God, acknowledging that this was the first fruits in anticipation of the harvest. That Sunday morning, early hours of the morning, before the break of dawn, a stone was rolled away. And even as the priest was waving the sheep before God, acknowledging the first fruits, out from the grave arose the first begotten of the dead, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And it happened only once in AD 30. Not many knew, not many understood what was happening. Some were caught up in the tradition. But a few Disciples were wondering if that stone of that tomb would actually be rolled away. I want to read from Mark chapter 16 verses 1 to 20 an account for us in the Gospels about what took place on that day. As in the temple, the priest was getting ready and celebrating the feast of the first fruits, the first thing that would spring up out of the ground. There's a record for us of Jesus Christ being raised up from the dead that particular day. In Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 20, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. This morning I'm going to read a lot of scripture for us. So if you thought you were spared a long Sunday service on Good Friday, we're making up for it today. <laughs> just joking. Because right? I'm just going to read a lot of scripture this morning as we talk about the risen Christ. In Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 20, we have this account for us. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And when they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, 
they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the side and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said it to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they shouted for joy and had a great feast. That's not what it says. It says, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them, whom? His own apostles. As they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest. This time they had an even greater celebration. No. But they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons and they will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents and if they drink any deadly thing it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere and the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. We're going to be talking this morning on the risen Christ. And just want to focus in on who Jesus is. And the fact of his resurrection. What I want to point out to us from the 16th chapter of Mark. Just two things for us to consider here. Is that the 11 apostles initially were in complete unbelief. I mean, they didn't even believe. These 11 were the closest to Jesus, but they did not believe. So this rules out any possibility of a conspiracy theory. Oh, the disciples of Jesus, you know, they all conspired. To create the story of the resurrection. Listen man. They were unbelievers. <laughs> what kind of a conspiracy could they create? 
They didn't even believe in their own Lord being raised from the dead. They didn't believe it. Mary Magdalene went and told them, I saw him. Something wrong with Mary today, you know. (laughs) They don't believe her. Now two of them saw the Lord as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. And so two of them went back to the nine and said, we saw him. Man, you guys, something's wrong with you. We are the majority. Nine of us don't believe. So none of us will believe. So definitely, the point here is definitely there could be no conspiracy theory that you know, they would just take the body of Jesus, hide it somewhere and tell the world he rose up from the dead. They would never do that because they themselves didn't believe. Until Jesus came and appeared to all of them, the 11 of them and said, guys, what's wrong with you? He rebuked them for their unbelief. He had to stretch out his hand and say, Thomas, put your finger in here. Touch me. See if I'm not alive. He had to cook some food for them and say, Peter, have some fish. At least you believe. So that's the first thing I want to point out. And the second thing I want to point out is that it is to these 11 unbelievers if you want to use that word, that he gave the commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Look what's happened all over the world. All over the world, the gospel is going forth like never before. And he entrusted that work to 11 unbelieving disciples. We have to at least acknowledge this has to be the work of God, not the work of man. Amen. None of us would entrust it to 11 people who didn't believe. Okay, guys, I think I made a mistake. Let me go pick another 11. But the very fact that all over the world, from a little insignificant little town of uh, uh, Jerusalem... And from that place to pick 11 men who just didn't believe really, who really weren't convinced and tell them, look, you go preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, I'm going to heaven. See what's happened. It's the work of God. It's a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is risen. Our faith is not in someone who was, but our faith is in someone who is. We don't believe in someone who just lived and died historically, but we believe in someone who lived, died, and rose again and who is alive today. I just want to bring our attention to who this risen Christ is today. Very quickly, I'll go through uh, some of these facts the Bible presents to us. Number one. The risen Christ is the one who has conquered hell and the grave. He has conquered hell and the grave. In Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 and 18, Jesus in his revelation to John says, John records this. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. John, I am the beginning and the ending. Everything is in between. 
I've got it all. The beginning and the ending. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. I have written the beginning and the ending even before it all started. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades or hell and death. This is the risen Christ. The one who has conquered hell and the grave. And because you and I believe in this risen Christ, we have hope beyond this life on earth. Amen. We believe in an eternity. We believe that even if this life here on earth were to end at any point in time, we are going to live forever with this risen Christ. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 to 57. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And he says mystery. It means it's a revelation which the world we may not know about. But now he's revealing it to us. He says, We will not all sleep or all die. We will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and the mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, death is real. But thanks be to God, we have the victory. Because he rose up from the So that's the Jesus we believe in. We believe in the one who has conquered hell and the grave. The risen Christ. Number two, the risen Christ is the one with all authority who is exalted above all. The writer of Hebrews, after he makes mention of the death of Jesus, has this to say. In Hebrews 2 and verse 9, he says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He is crowned with glory and honor. That he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Christ tasted death for everyone. He died for you and for me. But today he is not somebody who is still hanging on a cross. He is not somebody whose body is still lying beyond a tombstone. He is one who is crowned with glory and honor. He is exalted. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said this in Matthew 28, 18, All authority is given to me in heaven and So who is the risen Christ? He is the one to whom all authority belongs. What does it mean for you and me? It means when you and I say Jesus, when you and I say I'm a Christian, when you and I are going out in the name of Jesus, we are going out in the name of the one to whom all authority 
belongs. Amen. As a team, we're going to go to Varanasi. We're not going to go in there. Hey, let's sneak in there, man, and just whisper Jesus, you know. Sorry, that's not the way we come. We come in the name of the one who has all authority in heaven and in earth. Every knee will bow. Our rulers in heaven, rulers on earth, everyone will bow. We go in that name. And therefore, we are unashamed. We are bold. We know whom, in whom we believe. We believe in the risen Christ who is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so when we mention his name, we mention it with an attitude. Amen. With a good attitude. Because he is the one who carries all authority. We don't apologize for being Christians. We don't apologize for making mention of his name. His name is the name that's above every name. Amen. That's the risen Christ we're talking about. The risen Christ in whom we believe. Number three. The risen Christ is the Lamb of God who forever will be worshipped. He was the Lamb of God before creation. And he will be the Lamb of God forever through eternity. As the Lamb of God, he will be worshipped, worshipped, worshipped. As the Lamb of God, he is the God who has redeemed his own people. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And John having a little insight into what's going on in heaven, he writes this in Revelation 5, verses 11 through 14. He says, I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the numbers of them was 10,000 times, 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Meaning, this was innumerable. I couldn't count them. There were so many of them around the throne. What were they doing? They were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. The Lamb of God will be worshipped forever and ever as the one who redeemed us by his blood. He's going to be worshipped for that forever and ever and ever. Amen. Might as well start doing a little bit of it now. Let worship be on earth as it is in might as well make it as on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's what we're going to be doing. Amen. It was pretty loud in heaven. They worshipped him with a loud voice. They gave him honor and glory and blessing. Saying worthy is the lamb. Who has redeemed us. Forever. We're going to be saying thank you for redeeming us. For being the lamb of God. 
all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, John writes in Revelation 21 and verse 23, he said, the city, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, the new city of Jerusalem. He says, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. The lamb is the centerpiece of everything. He is the centermost, the central figure. He illuminates his own city. He illuminates his own world and he will be worshipped forever and ever. Who is the risen Christ? He is the Lamb of God. He is seated on the throne and he is, he deserves all worship. He is being worshipped in heaven right now and we might as well worship him continually here on earth. Number four, who is this risen Christ? He is our high priest ever interceding for us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, the writer of Hebrews says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Says, look, guys, we've got a great high priest who is up there in heaven right now. He went into heaven. So hold on to your confession. Hold on to your attestation of your faith. Hold on to your declaration of your faith that you believe in Jesus Christ. Don't let anything change that. Don't give up on that. Hold on to your confession that he died for your sins on the cross, was buried and he rose up again. Hold on to it. When you're going through the fire, hold on to it. When you're going through things you don't understand, hold on to your confession. When things are not going right, hold on to your confession. Why? Because we have a great high priest who is in heaven. What's he doing there? He writes on there in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Many as a high priest, he is not being indifferent to what we are going through here on earth. He is not uh, uh, disconnected from our, uh, our suffering, our weakness, our struggles. He is not there, disconnected from that. No, as a high priest right there in the presence of God, he is very much involved in what we are going through in our weaknesses. Because he himself walked this earth once. He himself walked in a flesh, uh, in a body like you and me. He walked this and at all points was tempted like as we are. Just that he didn't give in to that temptation. Therefore, he says, let's come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain. That we may continually, continually receive mercy and grace that will help us. That will empower us. That will infuse strength in our lives. In our time of need. What's he doing there as a high priest? As a high priest, he is interceding for us. He's not only praying for us, but then he turns around to us and he empowers us. He says, I know what you're going through. He has more mercy. He has more grace. Go on, live as a victor. Go on, live as a winner. You can make it. You can come through it. Uh, you want more mercy? You want more grace? I've got it for you. I've got an unlimited supply of mercy and grace. Just keep coming back to me. Come back to this throne of grace because you will find more mercy, more grace for whatever you are going through. He is our high priest. In Hebrews 7 verse 25, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's there interceding. He's there praying on our behalf, praying for the strength we need and re releasing that to us. Whatever our challenges may be on this earth, we believe in the risen Christ who is our great high priest who not only intercedes for us but who empowers us 
with mercy and grace to overcome. Amen. Number five. The risen Christ is also the coming king. He didn't disappear into heaven saying, guys, good luck with the rest of your lives. He said, I'm coming back. And again, John writes in his closing chapter, in the closing chapters of his book, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16, John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written which no one knew except himself and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and that with that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of this is the risen Christ we believe in. That one day he is coming back. And he will establish his own throne here on earth. He will rule and reign on this earth. He will establish his own kingdom for a period of thousand years. And then he's going to renovate everything. There's going to be the great white throne judgment. He's going to wipe out everything. And there will be new heavens and a new earth. He can do it because he made it all in the first place. Amen. Now, remember those 11 unbelievers? Once Jesus went up into heaven, they stood up and they preached the risen Christ. They proclaimed the risen Christ. And many of them died, gave their lives, burnt alive, killed by the sword, many of them. Nailed upside down. They died for the preaching of a risen Christ. The book of Acts records the first 30 years of the church. And I just want to trace several scriptures to those first 30 years. To show us that no matter what they faced. No matter who threatened them. No matter who mocked at them. No matter what was dangling around their neck. They preached one thing. Jesus Christ is alive. Because these 11 men who didn't believe. Having seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. Could not help but preach. Jesus Christ is alive. Just follow along these scriptures with me. In the very first message that Peter preached. On the day of Pentecost. So if you can imagine AD 30, about 500,000 people crammed into that city of Jerusalem waiting to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. In other words, the feast of the feast, the harvest festival. On that day, they would celebrate the harvest 50 days after the day of the first fruits. And as they were all getting ready on that day, Something else was happening. 120 of these disciples of Jesus woke up early morning. They went to this room called the upper room, a second story room. Somewhere in, this, in Jerusalem. 
And they were all praying. And suddenly, God began to do something. What the priest would do on the day of Pentecost was this. Early in the morning, he would go out to the fields. He would gather some of the harvest. Bring it back in. And he would grind the the corn, the grain. Prepare the flour. And he would bake two loaves. And what he had to do and what they did for about 1,500 years on that day. He would take those loaves before God. And he would wave them before God acknowledging the harvest. The bread had been ready. The grains have been harvested. The bread is prepared. And he would wave the two loaves before God. About that time. About 8.30 in the morning. As he was doing this. Something else was happening. In the upper room. There came a sound from heaven. As of a rushing mighty wind. A church was being born. To go gather the harvest fields of this earth. And prepare them. And bring them unto God. On the day of Pentecost. These 120 disciples were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They began to speak with other tongues. And and the noise was so great. A commotion broke out. Crowds of people began to gather around the upper room. And Peter stood up. He came down, running down from the second floor. He saw the crowd. He said, guys, uh, I just want to explain. Let me explain what's happening. And he preached his very first message. And that message, what did Peter announce in Acts chapter 2, verses 20? I'm just speaking out a few verses from his sermon. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by, uh, to, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death. Verse 24, whom God raised from the dead, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This Jesus, verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all saying, guys, i got news for you. God has raised Jesus up and we are his witnesses. We didn't believe then. We do believe now. We are his witnesses. After the healing of the lame man, this man who had been lame for 40 years was healed at the gate of the temple. Crowds gathered around. Peter had explained what caused this miracle. Here's what he said. He told the people, you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith his name, has given this man, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So he's telling guys, This Jesus God raised from the dead. And we are witnesses to that. So the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they couldn't handle this. Because these people are preaching that somebody rose from the dead. The man they crucified is now being proclaimed as someone who raised from the dead. How could that be? So they apprehend the disciples and and they demand an explanation. 
So here is Peter and John, uneducated fishermen. They've never been to school, nothing. And they're standing before highly educated people. In Acts chapter 4, it says, when they had set them in their midst, they asked them, can you explain to us, by what technology uh, or by what medicine have you, have you done this? It was by what means have you healed this man? We know him lame 40 years. How have you done this? Verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people, meaning I acknowledge you're all leaders, elders of Israel. If we this day are being judged or being questioned about a good deed done to this helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified 60 days ago, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here. Oh, leaders, the reason this man's here healed it's because Jesus, whom you crucified, he's alive. He's alive. They proclaimed the risen Christ. Even when their life was at stake, they continued to proclaim Jesus Christ as alive. So you read this record in the next chapter, next five. These leaders, they strictly commanded them not to teach in this name. And look. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I mean like, we told you, don't talk about his name, don't mention his name, but you continue to preach his name. We'll be held responsible. I mean, why are they so afraid of a dead man? What does Peter respond? Verse 29 in Acts 5. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And he put salt in the wound. He says, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, Lord and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to us, to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. In other words, they're getting angry and angrier. These apostles are getting bolder and bolder. And they're saying, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead. And we're going to keep preaching that. We're going to keep announcing that because we are his witnesses. Don't forget, these were saying the same 11 people who once did not believe. And Peter goes out to Cornelius, his very first message to the Gentile world. What does he preach? The same thing. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Acts 10, 39 to 42. And he tells Cornelius, we are witnesses of all the things which he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. And not to, all the, not to all the people but to witnesses chosen before God. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he who was, he, it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This is the same Peter who didn't believe at one point. He's saying look we ate with him after he rose from the dead. 500 
people were eyewitnesses to the fact that he had risen from the dead. If you lined up 500 people in any court of law, the verdict will go in the favor of those people. 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the dead. And Peter says, we saw him. We ate with him. That fish was pretty tasty. <laughs> we ate with him. I cannot go back on this message. I know he rose up from the dead. Peter is preaching. During the course of this time, a man named Saul is converted. We'll come to his story a little later. He becomes one of the foremost apostles of the New Testament. He goes around on his missionary journeys, preaching Christ from town to town, city to city. In Acts 19, he comes into a town at that time known uh, in a town called Athens in Greece. Athens is a town that's given to idolatry. It was a highly intellectual town. People were very, very, very much interested in philosophy and talking about all these mystical things and, 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 and trying to analyze and reason and all of that. Paul comes there. What does he preach? Acts 17, 30 to 32. Truly, here's what he's preaching in, in Athens. It's about AD 52, about 22 years after the resurrection of Christ. Truly, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. What's Paul preaching? The resurrected Jesus. And when, he heard, and when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you on this matter later again, later again. So people mocked at their preaching. You guys are talking about somebody who rose up from the dead. You must be crazy. They mocked him, but they still kept preaching the risen Christ. The one who is alive. When Paul is brought before the high priest Ananias. Tertullius, a lawyer, and Felix, the Roman governor. So here is Paul. Incidentally, Paul has a PhD. He's a highly educated man. Graduated from the Harvard of his day. Studied under Gamaliel, the most intelligent man of his day. And he is standing in court on trial before the Roman governor. Before the high priest Ananias. Before a great lawyer. Tertullian. What does Paul say? He talks, he preaches the same message. He talks about the resurrection of the dead. He says, we believe in it. Because the Jesus whom we preach is the living Jesus. Just a few words from his message. He says, I confess to you that according to the way which they called a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself also strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. He says, look, I believe in the resurrection of the dead because of Jesus Christ. What I want to challenge you and me today, the risen Christ is somebody we preach and we proclaim every day of our lives. Amen. 
the early church was so convinced on the reality of the resurrection of Christ, the fact that he is risen, they preached it even if their lives were at stake. They preached it even if people mocked at them. Can we be such kind of believers in Jesus Christ? That we believe in the risen Christ. That we believe in the risen Jesus. What proof? Oh no, he's getting to the next section of his sermon. <laughs> so Lord, I'll be done. What proof did the early church have for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What proof did they point to for the resurrection of Christ? You know, in our day, sure, we can present an apologetic view using historical evidence and archaeological evidence to point to the risen Christ. We can do that and there's nothing wrong with it. But what did these early church believers do? What did Peter, James and John do? I mean, how would they validate what they are preaching? They did not create an annual pilgrimage to the tomb of Jesus. Come, we'll take you there. See the empty tomb. They didn't do that. That was not the basis. Or that was not the evidence they were pointing to. There are three things you see in the book of Acts. And I'll go through them very quickly. I want to challenge you and I as believers today. In this postmodern world. In a world of technology and intelligence and science and all of that. And as good as they may be, I want to challenge you and me as believers that we need to pick up these three same evidences and highlight them in our day, in our time. And that's why I want to present that to us. The first evidence that they used to support their message of the risen Christ was the demonstrations of great power. Acts chapter 4, verse 29 29, 30 and 33 says this. This is how they prayed. And now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. How? By stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's how they prayed. What did they pray for? God, do some spectacular things. God, do some miraculous things. God, stretch out your hand and heal and let signs, let wonders, let miracles take place. That's how they prayed. And verse 33 says, with great power. Everybody say great power. With great power. The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. How did they give witness to the resurrection of Jesus? With great power. God always finishes much better than he begins. The glory of the latter house will always be greater than that of the former. 
if the early church used great power to give witness to the resurrection of Jesus, I believe that the church of the latter day, you and I, we will have to have greater power or we will have greater power to give witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Let's press into that. That's the whole purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will receive power. And ye, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be witnesses. What kind of witnesses did Jesus want on this earth? He wanted witnesses who would be people of power. That by the demonstration of power, we will point and be a witness to Jesus Christ. So let's press into that. Let's not be ashamed of signs, wonders, and miracles. That is one of the evidences we use to point to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he wanted. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. The second thing, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was another witness they pointed to, another evidence they pointed to. Acts 2, 32, 33, Peter in his sermon says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you now see and hear. Saying, listen, Jesus has been risen from the dead. He's exalted to the Father's right hand. And because he is there, he has poured out his Holy so the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a testimony, is an attestation, is an evidence that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. That's why we believe in the manifestation of the Spirit of God because that is evidence that Jesus is at the Father's right hand. Amen? So let's not be ashamed of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of the work and the ministry of the Spirit. The third evidence the early church had is the power of transformed lives. The power of lives that were totally changed. One of the most notable was that of a man named Saul. We've just made mention of earlier. Who later on became the great apostle Paul. Saul was, as I said earlier, he was a scholar. He was a highly intellectual man. He had graduated with a PhD. He had become a Pharisee. Meaning he had gone through all of the training available at that time. And he was totally anti-Christ. He couldn't tolerate the preaching. Of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he had. At that point. Dedicated his life. To stopping. The spread of the name of Christ. He would got approval. From the leaders of his time. To go into a city called Damascus. And, and. Capture all the Christians there. Wipe them out. Some people are trying to do that today. And on the road to Damascus, Saul has an encounter. A light shines from heaven. 
knocks him to the floor. And he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul has never heard that voice before. He can't recognize it. So he says, who are you? Lord, because you brought me to my knees, you know. And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul doesn't debate. He doesn't argue. He doesn't question. His response is, what do you want me to do, Lord? He's blinded. The wise replies, go wait in Damascus. He's led by his own soldiers now, blinded. He waits in Damascus for three days until a Jew named Ananias, who is now a believer in Christ, receives a revelation. The Lord appears to him and says, go to this address. Go to a street called Straight and there you'll find a man named Saul. He's praying. Go lay, go you lay hands on him and pray for him. Ananias comes, prays for him, he receives his sight. And from that day, the man who was the greatest opponent of the Christian faith now becomes the greatest proponent of the Christian faith. He gives the rest of his life going through all the region around. He makes all the journeys, travels far and wide, proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. His whole life has changed. Wayne Jackson writes about a research done by a man, Lord George Littleton, in the 1700s. He was an Oxford scholar. He was also part of the British Parliament. Lord George Littleton was highly skeptical about Christianity. And he realized that if he could prove that Paul's conversion and his life was a farce, then the entire New Testament would be a big farce. Don't even bother with 11 apostles. If you can prove that the conversion of this man Saul to Paul was a farce, everything on the New Testament can be thrown out. And so he went on his journey. He made a critical examination of the book of Acts to expose the fallacy of Paul's conversion experience. His intent was that to establish that Paul's radical transformation had wrong motives of self-interest. He knew there had to be some sort of a rational justification for such a major alteration in the life of man named Saul. So he went out studying this. After carefully researching the matter in a thoroughly scholarly fashion, he reversed his skeptical view and he came to the conclusion that Paul's conversion was genuine. There was no reasonable explanation for the radical turnaround other than the fact that Paul actually had seen the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. 
the Christian movement was founded, he therefore concluded, upon the truth that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in fact, was raised bodily from the dead. He published his book in 1747, Lord George Littleton. The book's called Observations of the Conversion of St. Paul. In which he argued for the validity of the Christian system of belief. He made three points there. He said the apostle, talking about Paul, was not an imposter who deliberately advocated that which he knew to be false. Indeed, why would he suffer so much persecution for what he knew to be a lie? He was not an enthusiast who was given to an overheated imagination. Paul was a disciplined logical scholar of the highest magnitude. Paul was not deceived by the fraud of others. For he claimed his revelation to be independent of the other apostles. Even as critics acknowledged his rugged independence. And it's not only Saul whose life was so dramatically transformed. Many others in the New Testament church. Through the centuries and on through till today. Our lives have been transformed. Many of you sitting here. People who have come from all walks of life. Who have been through all kinds of things. Our lives have been changed. And that is a testimony to the risen Christ. Could we stand to our feet? I call our worship team up, please. The fact that we became new creations in Christ that transforms us is evidence of the risen Christ. This morning, we worship the risen Christ. You can keep following me. We worship the risen Christ who is the one who has conquered hell and death. We worship the risen Christ who is the one with all authority who is exalted above all. We worship the risen Christ who is the Lamb of God who is forever worshipped. The risen Christ is our high priest ever interceding for us. The risen Christ is the coming King. We must preach him unashamedly. Amen. Let's press in to have these, the same testimony as the early church. The demonstrations of great power. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the power of transformed lives. That's what they, did, they used. To give evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. What about you? I know that many of us standing here truly believe in the risen Christ. But there could be some of us here. Maybe you're visiting, maybe you've just come in, you're invited by your friends. And maybe in your, up until this time, you personally have not made a commitment to believe in the risen Jesus Christ. Why should we believe in this risen Jesus? Because he is Savior. The one who came to save us from our sins. All of us are guilty. We stand sinful before God. We, are, we all are in need of a savior. Somebody who can save us from our sins. And the consequences of our sins. 
Jesus came to be that savior. He died for our sins on the cross. He was buried and he rose up again. And today the Bible says that if you will believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will acknowledge him with your mouth, you will be saved. You will be saved. If there's anyone here this morning in in your life up until this time, you've never told Jesus, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in you. I come to you. I acknowledge you as my Lord, my Savior. As my Savior, you save me from my sins. As my Lord, I live under your Lordship. I live under your leadership. If you've never prayed that prayer, or maybe there are some of us here, maybe you did that long time ago, but that you, but you wandered away from that commitment, and this morning you would like to do that afresh. You'd like to come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. I want to lead you in a simple prayer so that you can do that this morning. That Jesus Christ can truly be your Lord and your Savior. With every head bowed, every eye closed. Anyone here this morning would like to pray with me to acknowledge the fact that you are making a decision to believe in this risen Jesus as your Savior as your Lord or you're coming back to that decision I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me please would you say this with me Lord Jesus I receive you as my Savior and as my Lord Forgive my sins. Make me a child of God. And help me to live for you. For the rest of my life. I come to you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you pray this prayer with me. Either the first time you prayed or maybe you prayed it as a, as a rededication of your life, a reconsecration of your life. I just want to see your hands. If you don't mind, please raise your hands. If you prayed this prayer with me this morning. Anybody else here? Anybody? Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Let's see. Anybody? Up on the balcony. I see, I see some hands up on the balcony as well. Just put your hand up. Just keep your hand up. And our ushers will come and give you a packet, a bag that has some books in it, some literature in it that you could read and you could use for your life. Anybody else? Just put your hand up till they come and give it to you. See, one more hand way up at the back of the balcony. If you could just go there, please. Anybody else? Amen, amen, amen. Church, we worship a living Jesus. Amen. Let's be bold. Let's be proud of the Jesus we worship. Let's worship Him passionately. Let's love Him with all that we can. Let's give Him all that we have. Let's worship Jesus. We're going to take a few moments to worship, if you don't mind. Just tell Him how much you love Him. 
how much you adore him. Let's worship him for a few minutes and then we will close. He is Lord. And he is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.